Hey, I'm Preet. And I'm Josh. And this is Sicker Than Your Average Health Show. What's the best way to train a surgeon? Is it hours of studying? Is it seeing who's the best with their hands and tools? Or should we be looking at who's the best at video games, like Pokemon Go? Today, we tried to find out by talking to an orthopedic surgeon, a clinical assistant professor at UBC, and the CEO of a virtual reality company. He's here to tell us how those worlds collide and more. Today's show is about to enter a virtual alternate reality. So hold on to your goggles. Hi, I'm Dr. Danny Goyle, and I'm going to show you why this podcast is sicker than your average health show. Welcome to today's show, and I want to start today's show with a question for you, Josh, Uh, something that I don't know about you. Do you play video games? You know, uh, in uh, years prior, maybe I was a bit of a a bigger video game guy, but um, I have actually transitioned back into playing video games, but it's maybe not how you'd expect. I'm actually playing video games now on uh, virtual reality with my own virtual reality goggles. You ever tried it? I haven't actually. I think that's a little too fancy for me. Aren't the aren't those sets pretty expensive? You know, um, you would you might think so, uh, and they certainly probably were at one point in time. But uh, you know, these virtual reality headsets have become quite accessible and affordable now to the point that they're probably pretty comparable and sometimes even cheaper than like a new PlayStation or Xbox. And yes, they're definitely learned for playing video games on. But uh, you know me, Preet, and I'm using it for something a little bit more my style. I'm using this thing for learning. Ah, yes, for learning. You know, I I consider myself pretty well-informed on the latest health technology, and as evidenced by episode two when I won very handily that debate on when we'll see the next robot doctor. But uh, I got to say, I have never heard of VR being used for training a healthcare worker in any way. So is this just something that you thought about and you think is a good idea, or is this something that's happening out there right now? Yes, Preet, this is something that's happening right now. A recent CBC headline featured a Vancouver-based invention letting doctors, surgeons keep up with their skills in a whole new way. Well, I'm no surgeon, and I know that you're a hopeful surgeon, but that might not be quite enough for us to really wrap our heads around this whole idea of virtual reality and surgery. Um, So I think you know this seems really complicated to me, so I think we need to talk to somebody who might be a little bit more informed. And who better than a renowned expert in virtual reality and surgery, Dr. Danny Goyle, right here from Vancouver. The man who's featured in this CBC article, a bone-fixing doctor by day, but the mind behind using virtual reality to teach surgeries, Dr. Goyle is an orthopedic surgeon from the University of British Columbia who's been getting growing attention for his company, Precision OS, and their software being used to great effect, especially now with the limitations of the pandemic. But Preet's right, you know, full disclosure, I do want to be a surgeon. However, I think there's a lot of interesting points about this topic that we can share with everybody. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Danny Goyle. Enjoy. All right, so Dr. Goyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Goyle, we've actually met before, but uh, for those who haven't met you, can you give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, so my name's Danny Goyle. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in uh, Vancouver, BC, uh, clinical associate professor at the UBC Department of Orthopedics. Uh, I, my practice is primarily shoulder surgery, 
And in addition to that, I started a software company with two other founders from the game development side that's looking at surgical education using immersive technologies. Very interesting. So we're a health podcast. So when I think about game development and surgery, I don't necessarily connect those right away. But could you tell us a little bit more about how those two things align and connect? Yeah, so game development primarily relies on two things, hand-eye coordination and motor skill. And so those are the two things that we rely heavily on in surgical education and surgical practice. And so when you bring those two skills together, the agenda for the education side or the medical side is to teach the skills that the game development industry has really championed over the last several decades. So it's uh, perhaps an interesting yet not so obvious marriage at the beginning. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about like, is this, is this totally new? Has virtual reality been used at all in the past to be doing any teaching? So virtual reality has been around for quite some time. However, its application on a larger and broader audience has only become readily available in the last few years. And that's because it relied on a lot of computing power, stands to determine your position in space. But now all those things are existing within the hardware itself, which only rests on your head and controllers you can hold in your hand. So I think the biggest leap in this uh, technology was made maybe a couple of years ago where we went from a wired or hardware platform into a wireless platform. And so, yes, it is readily available now. You can buy the hardware off the shelf and over Amazon. Okay, that, that's interesting for me to think about that uh, it's not something I'm really familiar with. So obviously tech has a huge place in healthcare and on the show, um, for those who have listened to past episodes, you've heard us talk about AI, hardware and you know robotics and how that all fits but this sounds a little different than that realm and before we get into why that's different maybe dr goal you can explain a little bit more about if your company wasn't around or in the last few years how do we train surgeons right now yeah so we've been doing a very similar thing for several uh centuries actually and it's the apprenticeship model where a junior learner will participate in a surgery with a senior surgeon and the senior surgeon, he or she will help guide the junior learner through the procedure where they get to do parts of the procedure under the guidance of a senior surgeon. Okay, let's hold on a second. Josh, what's a junior learner? Is that people like you? And how is that different than a senior surgeon? Right. So the senior surgeon is the attending doctor for the surgery, the one who is performing the surgery. They may have a learner with them, and that learner could be someone who's junior, all the way down to a medical student who's into the operating room for the first time, or to a resident who's in one of the first few years of their training, who's still sort of getting to know the ropes. Uh, But in terms of junior, senior, um, the junior relationship is just anyone who's lower in their training or earlier in their training than the person who's supervising the surgery. And that's how they typically learn. And that's combined with the cognitive side, which is the knowledge side. There's lots of reading and writing, taking exams that go along collaboratively with that surgical technical piece. So it's been a combination of both and it's been consistent and successful uh, to some degree for those last several centuries. It sounds like you probably have a pretty good idea of how your technology can sort of change that paradigm a bit. And we can be using some of these modalities to improve the way that we're training surgeons. Hey, That's correct. Exactly. Last night, I was attending one of your presentations. And in this presentation, it was a live demonstration of how your software can be used collaboratively to uh, teach surgeons maybe other surgeons' approaches or some of the skills right in the OR. Can you explain a little bit about what that presentation was that I got the chance to see last night? Yeah, it was a fascinating experience for all of us. And 
what we historically do to give you some background is surgeons learn very well from other surgeons and that shared knowledge is very powerful in our industry. And it's in fact, it's powerful in any industry and it's no different than learning from a senior experienced individual in a particular craft. Now, obviously COVID has prevented us from connecting learners to teachers. And so what our technology allows people to do is to coexist in the same virtual environment from your homes. So yesterday we had seven surgeons who were experienced in hip surgery uh, collaborate and be together in the same virtual operating room from their homes and offices, while 200 people from 28 countries were able to watch them dialogue and perform surgery on a virtual patient. So this was something that you were able to do, like you said, in the context of COVID, where we can't get into the same building, let alone city as one another. You, there were how many countries? 28. There's a major time and cost expenditure that goes into organizing these courses in person. And so this was a problem that existed even prior to COVID. And if you dive a little bit deeper, there's certain parts of the world that just never would be able to get access to this type of education. Whereas now with digital technologies, we can allow them to really benefit from learning from an expert in a different part of the world with them staying at home in their home city, home country. I guess relating that to your company a bit, how, like, what is the sort of broad mission then in educating surgeons for you? Yeah, so our, our mission is that, you know, no patient should have to benefit from a lack of experience from a surgeon. I think that knowledge is something that we want to disseminate globally and as widely as possible. And we can do that now uh, through our technology. And so our goal really is to, you know, equalize and really support the advancement of surgical knowledge and patient care on a broader, wider scale. The virtual reality in terms of offering a way to teach surgeons, we talked a little bit about so the traditional paradigm and how this is sort of evolving that a little bit, but um, people might be aware that some of the tools that surgeons would use now involve cadaveric specimens where you're in a lab or perhaps you're working on like fake models of bones to, to sort of learn how to do some of these uh, fracture repairs. So do you do the same thing in virtual reality or how does the virtual reality sort of add into that uh, existing Experience. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. So one of the limitations with cadaver learning is that we're practicing surgery on an otherwise normal specimen, or in this case, a cadaver. Cadaver? Cadaveric specimen? What are we talking about here, Preet? So the cadaver is the body of somebody who has donated their body to science and medical research. And they're mainly used to learn human anatomy, but now we're learning about how surgeons use them to learn different procedures and different anatomical points to be aware of. But however, we operate on abnormal situations. So if you take a limb or a leg or a fracture of any type, it's broken. And yet we practice on unbroken femurs or tibias. So what we can do in virtual reality is we can offer a variation of those different fractures for the surgeon to practice on. And that variation in skill is what not only advances their knowledge, but it advances their skill set and how they think about this problem when they go to the operating room to operate on a real patient. So this is a really interesting approach here because you're saying it's a, a way to basically educate surgeons globally in the future, like maybe as the big endpoint. So usually something that comes along with training is cost. So I think I think a lot of us have, if we've read a little bit about VR and surgery, we just think about, we read a lot that it does save costs here and there, but I don't think people are really able to conceptualize how much and how it saves cost over time. So training is uh, a, certainly a cost-saving measure on many aspects. So number one, it saves the surgeon from having to travel 
to go to a course, he or she could do the course at home. That's the first savings of time and money. For the hospital, it saves the hospital time and money as the surgeon gets more proficient, they become much more uh, facile at their craft and they can actually do a procedure in less time while actually doing it safely and proficiently. Now for the patient, which is the ultimate goal for us, they can actually do a higher, potentially a higher caliber procedure in a shorter period of time while delivering a higher outcome or a better outcome. Now, when a patient has a excellent outcome, the savings to the system is dramatic. When they have a complication, it's very, very expensive for the hospital and the system because that may mean additional surgery, that may mean a time, that may mean time off work for the patient. All those things contribute to the economic impact that that patient can or would have had depending on their outcome. So there is a significant effect from the beginning all the way down to the uh, to the end with the patient involved as the priority. It, obviously, whenever we're doing anything in medicine, we're we're always concerned first and foremost about the outcomes for the patient and the progress for the patient. You talked a little bit about uh, people of different training levels, sort of being able to learn using virtual reality. Um, can you talk a little bit more about sort of the largest benefits at the different training levels? Someone who's incredibly junior or someone who's a staff surgeon has been there for a long time. Does virtual reality sort of serve those two learner groups in a different way? Yeah, it's a very good question as well. So I would say yes. So it caters to the more junior learner who doesn't typically have an opportunity to do much of the surgical procedure when they're first starting out in, in their careers. Whereas a more seasoned surgeon, he or she could practice a new technology, a new technique in this technology whenever they want as well. So we have experienced that it can span the spectrum of learners from novice to expert and provide value to each of them. Is there is there an experience that you had, perhaps maybe as a junior learner or even as an advanced learner later, where you feel like if you'd had VR at the time, it could have really enhanced your ability to do a procedure or learn a skill? Yes. So in the v, in the VR environment, we allow the users to take x-rays, for example. So one thing that I struggled with when I was learning was looking at an x-ray and trying to imagine what part of the bone I was looking at. In VR now, I can actually take as many x-rays as I want with no risk to me because there's no radiation. I can look at the fracture. I can look at the bone. I can actually pull the bone out of the virtual patient and then I can still take additional x-rays, again, with no risk to me, and really get a deeper understanding of what that bone anatomy looks like. Wait a sec. Josh, why is a surgeon worried about his own radiation exposure from performing an x-ray? So what he's talking about here is the difference between getting an x-ray before you go in for your surgery and an x-ray during your surgery. And everyone remembers their x-ray before their surgery in most circumstances. But what actually happens during your surgery for fixing broken bones is they wheel an x-ray machine into the operating room while you're under your general anesthetic. You won't have any memory of it. And they take more pictures to sort of check their work along the way. And surgeons want to make sure that the minimal radiation is being exposed to everyone, the patient and themselves. And what Dr. Goyle is saying that if you can learn these skills in the virtual reality setting to become more efficient and need to use the x-ray less often, it'll translate into the operating room and there being less radiation exposure for everyone. That's referred to as perceptual expertise, where you're learning the perception and trying to draw a correlation between what's on x-ray and what you see in real life. It's a very difficult task to accomplish, and some people may take you know, 10, 20 years to achieve that. So now we've facilitated that through this offering. And to me, that touches a little bit upon some of the stuff I've seen from your work that 
touches on a concept called uh, deliberate learning. And as a sort of a junior learner, it's something that really resonates for me. But can you explain maybe a little bit more what deliberate learning is and how someone who's literally just trying to get started would benefit from that deliberate learning in the virtual reality platform? Yeah, deliberate learning are also referred to as deliberate practices based on the simple principle of you learn best when you fail or make a mistake. And that obviously does not exist in healthcare. We don't want to be doing that to learn. Uh, so we offer that opportunity to do that in the digital world. In VR, you can make as many mistakes as you want, and we provide you data so you can actually get better and better from those mistakes. And so it's no different than riding a bike, playing a sport. The overall principle of making a mistake and learning from failure is what we've championed in virtual reality. Can you talk a little bit about the data you found thus far and sort of how tracking these performances has led to uh, increased maybe surgical skill or, or learning uh, for, for trainees? Yeah, so we're opening up a whole new dimension in how we measure people's performance. And I'll share with you a study that we did recently where we took senior residents and compared a group that was studying in virtual reality to a second group that was studying in using a video, for example, of the same surgical procedure that was actually performed by a highly skilled surgeon. So both groups watched either the video or did virtual reality. And then we had them both go to the cadaver lab where they had to perform that surgery and be assessed by experienced shoulder surgeons. The shoulder surgeons who were watching the residents perform this procedure had no idea what type of education they had. Okay. And the VR group actually made 50% less surgical errors than the non-VR group. And so if you know, it's sort of really compelling evidence to say that this technology does have a place. It's obviously can change behavior and it's based on the measurement and data that they were able to react upon in the VR environment than the non-VR group. Can you talk a little bit of the, about the difference between uh, AR and VR? Yes, so the best example of augmented reality or also known as AR is the game Pokemon, where you have your phone and you look around through your phone and you can actually put digital imprints on the real environment. That's probably the best example of AR. VR is where you put on goggles on your head that are blacked out so you can't see the external environment. And the only thing you see is a completely digital environment that you can react with and behave in. It seems like a, a significant leap that would maybe you would expect some other sort of connecting pieces between a console at home that people use for the majority of input that I think the most consumers use virtual reality for is for video gaming and entertainment purposes at home all the way to training surgeons how to perform a surgery. And it sounds, it, I would imagine with most other technologies that advance like this, there's sort of in between stages like, oh, medicine sees that uh, other industries were able to use virtual reality successfully to end up training surgeons. But it, to me, this big connection sort of make a giant leap all at once. Yeah, so we are actually still lagging behind in VR for medical education. There are several industries that have been using this from Boeing to the uh, retail industry. Uh, Walmart may be a really good example. Walmart uses or has been using VR to train their employees. The airline industry has been using VR and AR to train their employees and some of their technical staff. And real estate, the real estate industry has been using VR for quite some time where you can actually, from your home, go and visit a home that you may or may not want to purchase. And so, and the power of VR is that, like I was mentioning before, you can see a complete digital world that actually looks and feels real from your home. What would you say to skeptics who feel like, who might think that VR is primarily based on video games? 
and they hear that their surgeon spent hundreds of hours training on VR and they're skeptical about that person being their surgeon. How would you respond to someone who says that? So I would say it's a really tough thing to explain to somebody unless they've been in virtual reality. It's one of these experiences which unless you've actually been inside a virtual reality headset, you don't appreciate how immersive and how real it can feel. And to give you an example, the controllers that we use for VR are these small handheld controllers, we call them, that are used to pick up objects and interact with that environment. We've had people drop the controllers on the ground because they think that the table in VR is actually a real table. So they'll put their instrument down thinking it's an instrument, but they actually drop our controller on the ground because there's really nothing there. So that level of immersion has been so powerful that I think to try to describe it uh, by talking about it without experiencing it is it's doing it, uh, it's not doing it justice. So do you think patients might need to almost like have a go- like set of goggles ready so they can understand what their surgeon has seen before? Like how, how, do these, how do you think you make them comfortable with that? I think you educate them about it just like anything. Uh, you know, telemedicine is a good example. There's many people who would not have understood telemedicine prior to COVID because it wasn't used very, you know, significantly at all. But now, I mean, I use it a lot, a lot of my patients and they really, really like it. And now they understand it. I can talk to my surgeon or my physician when I want. It may not be in person. I can see him or her, talk to them about my problem, and then perhaps arrange an in-person visit if I need to. I think VR and AR and any new technology, we do have to involve our patients in informing them about what exactly we're doing and how we're using this technology to help their outcomes uh, be maximized. It, it sounds a lot like this is a really fantastic tool, that it works quite well, that it, it's quite available. Do people think this is a replacement for cadaveric specimens? Do people think that they can get away with doing all of their surgical training uh, so that the first time they ever do a surgery is only after they've spent VR time? Like, what do people, do people have misconceptions about the way that this tool is going to be used, I guess, is the best way to ask that. Yes, it's, and it's a, it's a very good question. And I should be very clear that surgical education is a very complex undertaking. It involves knowledge, technical skill, and the combination of both. So what VR offers an additional tool to our ongoing use of different modalities for training surgeons. So VR is not intended to replace a cadaver. Uh, VR is intended to augment the experience in a way that we just can't do right now. And you know the other drawback is because you're holding controllers, the sensation of touch is limited. And for particular learners, that touch is extremely important as you get more advanced in your learning that need for touch actually goes down because you're more visually sensitive than you are uh, sensitive through touch. And so that's the first drawback. The second drawback I would say is that it's about educating people who are skeptics about VR to Preet's point, you know, I haven't tried this. What does it look like? Can you really actually learn surgery in virtual life? So that exposure piece is another piece that's quite limited, I would say. And, um, you know, the third part is, is that assumption that it's going to replace cadavers. I think that's a, a misconception. It should never be interpreted that way. The technology is still in its infancy. It's going to continue to advance. And it may be that certain people may not need cadavers, but it's not intended to replace cadavers for the entire learning community. So one thing we like to do is try to engage our listeners and find out what else they want to know from maybe their own fields and whatnot. And we got a question from a psychologist who was wondering how accurate the reality is, not just maybe in terms of um, like you said, the table looked real, so they thought they were putting something on a table, but even the things surrounding the focus point. So the ability to emulate the feel of being in the environment and even evoking the same emotional response that you would have in the environment. Like, would you say it's completely transferable 
to look at VR and be able to translate that into an OR when you're operating? So it's, uh, it's an excellent question. And I would say that one of the things we strive to do is to continue to push the realism uh, within VR. And there's many reasons for that, not because it looks like it should be in the real world, but, but it also drives this element of empathy uh, amongst the learner. And I think that's a really important piece that many people don't talk about in VR is why we are pushing the reality piece. So from a psychological standpoint, again, it goes back to that. You have to be in it to experience it, to feel and see what it actually looks like. And there's some limitations, like I mentioned, there's the loss of, you know, there are some haptics or the sensation of touch, but it's not a hundred percent that what you would experience in an actual patient, but that transfer of skill, can we substitute other modalities? within VR to help get that person to the next level. I think that remains to be seen. I've never, I'm, so I'm the only one in this uh, conversation right now who hasn't used VR. So I am just trying to conceptualize yeah. it in my mind. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine it, but just from hearing Josh explain it from you today, like I can see how it as a modality is a way to supplement learning, especially like for people who don't maybe have access to the same training. So it's a really interesting concept for me to try to wrap my head around. Can you talk about where you think virtual reality is headed? What, what sort of lofty goals or what sort of things do you envision virtual reality uh, implementation in training clinicians to get to? What point do you imagine that we can, we can really, really just like expand our minds and think about like, if we think five years in the future or 10 years in the future, or even two or three, what, what are we looking at coming towards us here? Yeah, so I would say that it's just going to become a natural extension of how we learn. And whether it be right now reading a book online or taking a webinar, 10 years ago may have been considered to be somewhat foreign to most of us. And now it's just commonplace. And I think that's where VR is headed. And not just for healthcare, but I think for many industries from kindergarten to professional schools, there's been implementation across the spectrum using new technologies to learn. So I think the future really for this technology, A, is going to depend on high quality content, but also the dissemination as a tool to learn aside in addition to what we currently use. Uh, outside of uh, surgical training, do you use VR yourself to play any games? Is there anything that you like to put on a headset for and engage with in, the, in those gaming platforms? Well, I, I have tried the boxing game and I did duck when I was uh, punched, almost punched by one of the <laughs> participants in the boxing game. I thought it was actually impressively real. Yeah, it was quite uh, it was quite surprising to me because I didn't think I was going to react that way. And I bet that that brought about a bit of an emotional response when you sort of felt like, oh, my goodness, if I don't move my face, it's going to actually be hit by something. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, you know, going back to Preet's question about the emotional response, we did uh, have monitored some of our residents here at UBC going through VR. And a lot of them get pretty nervous when they're in the virtual environment to the point where they're perspiring, their heart rate's going up. And I think those emotional responses go back to the psychology question that was asked earlier, that people are having a visceral response when they're in the virtual environment. Similar to me wanting to duck when, I, when a virtual person was about to punch me in the boxing game. And so uh, I think it's quite fascinating. I think there's a lot of growth to be had in this uh, ecosystem, but time will tell. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Go, we really appreciate you uh, dropping by the show to have this conversation with us to share a little bit more with those outside of healthcare about how some of these advancements are being made in uh, virtual reality. And we're looking forward to answering people's questions when they hear the show. And uh, maybe sometime in the future, we'll, we'll have you back on again. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you both for having me. It was a really good time.
All right, Josh, uh, I think we got to call it on today's episode because um, I may have learned too much today. So I need to go home and read a little more about VR. <laughs> you are the guy in this conversation who came into it knowing nothing about VR. So after you heard, what do you think about it? Well, first of all, I think I need some VR goggles like right away. But my mind was buzzing during that interview because I was just thinking about how else could we use this in healthcare other than setting up Pokemon Go for patients that are staying in the hospital. You mean beyond getting your own virtual reality headset, putting it on and playing Beat Saber, the lightsaber dance game? Uh, there are actual other reasons this could be helpful. It, you're totally right. Um, you know, I, I did a bit of a look into this as we wrapped up recording this, and I was checking out some of the other areas that are getting some research that are in medicine, uh, and they're looking to see how this might be useful for helping people with things like exposure therapy for uh, conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder or phobias and all the way to how the people how people experience pain after a surgery there's not much research on it yet but there's research starting to come out on it as the technology is quite new and it will be really interesting to see in a few years from now will virtual reality be the place where we train surgeons and where patients actually put on a headset after a surgery or after dealing with conditions for years of their life to try to see if they can get some relief it's it's really quite exciting to see so all of that said i definitely recommend that if you have the chance you know if you know someone with the with one of these headsets um ask if you can try it on check out how immersive this reality is uh, get a chance to try out that realism we we love to get ideas flowing and dr goyle uh, got his idea after being introduced to vr without ever thinking for himself that he was going to be starting his own company and on that note um you know today's episode had a lot of vocabulary a lot of different content that maybe people had not been exposed to before so if there's anything more that you want to know about VR, anything that you want further explained, just drop us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or send us an email, and we'll get back to you, or we'll try to cover it in part two of our VR episode, which is coming later. And if you want to see more of what Dr. Goyle's company, Precision OS, looks like, definitely check them out online. They're Precision OS Tech. Dot com and you can see videos of the actual virtual reality training for these surgeries and get a sense for how realistic this is and how this tool can really help people learn and it's a fantastic opportunity to check it out coming up on the next episode of sicker than your average health show we're keeping the van city vibes alive with a ubc phd student in cancer research lastly before you go take a step back and think about your own life and figure out how could VR change your world. Sicker Than Your Average Health Show is hosted by Josh Britton and Preet Gandhi. Today's guest was Dr. Danny Goyle. The show is edited by Mac Britton. If you haven't already, subscribe and download on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sick Health Show. We're looking forward to sharing more with you on part two of virtual reality and healthcare. All that and more on our next episodes of Sicker Than Your Average Health Show.